Welcome to Manly Movies, where guys get together to shoot the breeze and talk about our favorite movies and the lessons they teach us about being a man. Just a quick intro, as always, I'm JB. I'm a husband, a father of two, a son, and a brother. I'm not an expert on any of those things, but I do the best that I can. And I have a passion for film and a passion for discipleship, so why not mix the two? Movies can teach us a lot about life, and that's what we want to dive into. So let's get started. Joining me, a repeat guest, Mr. Patch. That's what I... That's all Patrick Hicks is his name, yeah. but he's he'll always be Patch. Yeah, I'm just like I'm like Cher or Madonna, only not as good looking. So and I don't <laughs> I don't age that well. So it's gonna be back, JB. I'm so grateful to be back on this podcast with you to discuss uh, a classic but hard to watch movie at times. <laughs> this is my rifle, this is my gun. <laughs> that one. That one. <laughs> that movie. That one. That in particular. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest i really enjoyed watching that this this past time more than the first time that i watched it. i guess because i'm older and understand it a little bit more what's going on right so before we dive into this real quick besides full metal jacket what have you been watching recently that, that you would want to recommend well i just finished my second viewing of the 2022 baz lerman feature elvis the biopic about the king of rock and roll i was absolutely in love with it the first time I saw it and my dad wanted to see it. So we watched it together. And since then, I mean, I'd love to be even more the second time. And because of that, I like many biopics want to find out more about the person in question or the person being biopicked. And I know that by default, anytime you make a movie about someone, you're going to leave stuff out. You're going to change some things around, maybe the order of events. And so that happened and you just can't, you can't stop that. But the major events of the movie are still true. And it was a fantastic depiction of the life of Elvis Presley and his relationship with Colonel Parker. The movie inspired me to pick up a two volume biography by Peter Lernicek is his name, I believe. I'd have to go back and kind of correct that if it's, if it's not, but uh, Peter's his first name. So you can Google that, <laughs> but no, it's a two volume, like 400 page in each volume docu- or documentary biography on essentially the whole life of Elvis Presley. And it covers everything from his family growing up in Tupelo and their move to Memphis to his start at uh, in his first record label at Sun Records and then leads into basically what we see in Elvis the movie, just in a lot more expansive form. I'm early into it, but I'm already discovering so much about him that I wouldn't have known. I mean, this guy who was a fantastic performer and showman, he was an introvert. He didn't like performing in front of people, especially early on. He just loved playing guitar, loved playing music, and had a pretty serious early romantic relationship with someone that wasn't depicted in the movie, but was not Priscilla. Priscilla, now I can't remember her name. All these names. His wife (laughs) eventually married. Priscilla, his wife. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But the book itself just is very detailed. It's uh, becomes highly recommended by a lot of people who want sort of the quote definitive biography. Anytime you're dealing with someone famous, you're always looking for like, okay, where can I get the real story? And this guy's approach to it is so fantastic, JB, because in his prologue, he prefaces the book by saying, listen, this isn't the biography or this isn't the story of Elvis. It's my story of Elvis. And so he recognizes the fact that he can get as detailed as possible, but not everything is going to be detailed about a person's life because you can't do that. I mean, it's just impossible. 
And so as I'm going through it, I'm kind of keeping that in mind. And it's been a it's been a real, real joy to read it. So I'm, I'm enjoying that. But the first volume is called Last Train to Memphis. And then the second volume is called Careless Love. So you can check your local library for those titles if you're interested. And again, I can't remember the author's name. His first name's Peter. And then I'll probably be lying because it's probably something else. But but yeah, Last Train to Memphis is the first volume. And then Careless Love is the second. Is that the book that you talked about on Feeling Film? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that same yep. one. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, see, I too watched Elvis this past week for the first time, actually. I, man, <laughs> I was just enamored the entire time. And I know you grew up in Little Rock, right? Yes, sir. So I mean, I grew up in Northeast Arkansas, about 45 minutes from Memphis. Oh, wow. Okay. So Elvis was the man <laughs> growing up. I mean, between Elvis and Johnny Cash, right? Because they're both right, right around there where I lived. And so my mom was a huge Elvis fan. My dad was a huge Elvis fan. <laughs> my dad tells me about when he died and this guy running, he was, he, he was coaching high school football and this guy comes running out on the field and screaming, the hound dog died. The hound dog died. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yep. And that's, that, that's rural Arkansas. So that is, well, <laughs> and of course, apparently that was just rural South because I mean, he had such a huge impact on people, not only while he was living, obviously with the ladies early on, but it, it just, the impact that he made on music and on just our culture was just absolutely phenomenal. And uh, so mm-hmm. that doesn't surprise me that that, that would be happening <laughs> in a small rural town. <laughs> yeah. So, and you're going back to what you're saying about him being an introvert and not wanting that life. You just made me think of this song that was, that was out in like the late nineties, early two thousands or something. It's by Leanne Womack. It's a country song. And she says, Hey Mozart, what kind of name is Amadeus? It's kind of like Elvis. You got to die to be famous. And that really ticked me off when I first heard that because Elvis didn't become famous after he died. He died because he was famous. That's the point. Like he, right, right. like he, he did not want that. And it, that's what ultimately led to his death. Yeah. You just made me think of that. So yeah. a lot of people take Elvis and, and the lifestyle that he lived and, you know, they can, they can kind of look down on him or whatnot, but man, so that's a, you watch that movie and you feel sorry for the dude. Well, and I think that's what that's what Baz really kind of hits on in a real like positive way. I think that's the point. One of the big points he makes uh, successfully is not to feel sorry for Elvis, but to recognize that, look, I grew up with a dad who grew up in the 50s and 60s. And so like my junior high and high school years, the radio station, because we didn't have, you know, podcasts and things like that that we could just do on demand or spotify we would either make mixtapes or we'd listen to the radio a lot of my radio station surfing landed on a radio station called cool 95 it was all 50s and 60s elvis was one of them you know he he showed up a lot because he was had all these number ones and then later on um and i i say this all the time with my wife and with other friends that i i think i was born in the wrong decade although i love being Mm -hmm a child of the eighties, you know, a baby of the seventies, the sixties and seventies were the, especially the seventies. Like that's the, that's the year of music or the decade of music that I absolutely just love. Coincidentally, when I think about Elvis as a kid or even as a teenager, young adult, I laugh at like a lot of people, the fat Elvis from Vegas. I'm like, Oh gosh, that's guy. He's so outlandish and whatever. And you know, he was so much cooler as a young artist 
And the mm. fact is, I walked out of that movie just absolutely loving the Vegas part of it. I love mm-hmm. the the showmanship. I love the way in which Lerman shows how intricate he is in creating music. Like there's a particular scene where he's putting the band together for his Vegas show. And it's absolutely phenomenal. And it reminded me that, look, he wasn't fat because he was lazy. <laughs> the pills yeah. did that and being overworked yeah. and Colonel Parker, all these things had a lot to do with him just dying as young as he did and, and kind of letting himself go. But it wasn't because he was lazy. It wasn't because he became a farce. Look, his last performance that was recorded that we see in the film, I mean, if you listen to his voice, close your eyes and listen to his voice. I mean, he sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. He may not look amazing, but he sounds amazing. And at the end of the day, that's what people remember. They remember how amazing of a singer he was, how great a performer he was. And when his performance started going down because of his health, his voice never did. And I love that about it. And I love that, that Lerman leaves us with that. He leaves us with, look, he left a legacy that was beyond just being the character Elvis. Like he was a man. And that's what this two-volume biography is helping me get more wrapped around is the, the, the man behind the sequence, if you will, the man behind the jumpsuit. The author is Peter Gurlnick. Sorry, Gurlnick or Gurlnick, Gurlnick. So yeah, just want to make sure that I got that out there. But yeah, I agree. It just, I walked away really appreciating essentially everything after his comeback special in 1968, more than I did Mm -hmm. when I was younger. And and that's, that's a tribute to Baz and the work that he put in. Mm -hmm. And you know, you talked about how great of a voice he had, you know, whenever people start talking about like, who's the greater rock and roll artist between, they always throw out the Beatles and Elvis. And my, my answer to that is I would rather listen to Elvis sing Beatles songs. <laughs> How about that? Okay. All right. That would be then you get the voice and you get the, and you get the, the lyrics. So. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's an interesting approach. I'd have to yeah, kind of, exactly. I'll have to digest that a little bit and kind of stir on it to see if I agree. May have to come back. <laughs> but, uh, but an interesting approach. Yeah. But the dude had a voice, man, like just to could cut through wood. Like no man. doubt. Uh, speaking of being born in the wrong decade, I watched a couple of movies from the fifties, the original father of the bride from 1950 with Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor. Excuse me. Yeah. Really, really good. I liked it more than the Steve Martin one from the nineties that I kind of grew up on. Okay. And then I also watched from 1952, the greatest show on earth from Cecil DeMille. Yeah, dude. That is. Yeah. That is a great movie. It's underrated, and 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 I saw it for the first time maybe when I was twenty three or twenty four, and I was like, "This is great." It's one of those few movies that this is before DVDs were more in style. So maybe it was actually when I was in my teens. It was one of the few movies that came in a double, like a box set of two, because it was that long. But yeah. yeah, I saw that in your letterbox that you gave it five stars. And I was like. Well, that makes two of us because it's really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie, man. And, and and really, I was watching it and I was like, man, I'm going to show this to my kids when they get older and they're not going to understand because that circus does not exist in that capacity anymore ever since they got rid of the elephants and everything. So like my kids will never understand the joy that I had growing up going to the, the big circus like that. So. Yeah, I was really grateful that Barnum and Bailey was still around for a few years after my son was born, and we got to go, I think, 
twice. And there's a clip that I have of him on video. And he's looking at the elephants and he's going, elephants, hi. And it's just so precious. And while I, I get why the circus in general has sort of tapered off and kind of gone the way of the buffalo, there's something magical about that. And I think that a movie like The Greatest Show on Earth really captures, in a way, the spirit of the circus in a similar way that The Greatest Showman does about about uh, P.T. Barnum. You can mm-hmm. say that both of them kind of take liberty with some of the like realistic stuff. But overall, I think both of those movies really capture a beauty that is what it's like to be under the big top. For sure. And I'll mention one more because I know it's something that's very near and dear to your heart. I watched for the very first time this past week, Roadhouse. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's a favorite of mine. A, a recent that's- favorite. Like in the last probably 10 or 15 years. It's It's been a... Uh, I'll tell you, JB, that, well, go ahead and give me your thoughts because I'll just, you know, I'll agree with you uh, because or unless you're going to just tell me it was terrible and then we'll have to just hang up the call. But either way, just, <laughs> go ahead. This is your well, show. No. Well, first <laughs> of all, I can't say it without saying it like Peter Griffin from uh, Family Guy, Roadhouse. <laughs> but, but secondly, okay, it has a it has a Western feel to it. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it really plays out like, like a Western. And the Jeff Healy band playing rock and roll covers throughout the film yes. was just freaking legendary, man. Yes. Like, I just loved it so much. Oh man. That was, yeah, that there was, there's so much to love about that movie and it's quintessentially eighties and it captures small town bars, like to a T yes. complete with the fence in front of the band. So they don't get bottles thrown at their heads, even if they're, you know, being shattered or whatever but this is one of those movies that is yes this was before point break when we see patrick swayze in all of his great hairness and <laughs> masculineness such a fantastic movie but what i loved about roadhouse is it is it's that kind of modern western i'm not a huge fan of you know, classic westerns there are several that i've gravitated towards you know you got your tombstones and 310 to yuma the remake and you know so but the the John Waynes and the old classics that my dad grew up with and loving, I just never got around to really liking those. I tried a couple and it just it's like coffee. I just can't do it, even as much as I want to love it. Mm. But uh, but Patrick Swayze's character is so fantastic. And as a manager of people or people, uh, I have a team of, of folks. I have a print in my office that I put in a little picture frame, and it's got Patrick Swayze's character in kind of a, a pencil scribble and above it it says be nice until it's time to not be nice <laughs> and like that's that's kind of a part of my mantra listen i'm gonna be nice to you until it's time to not be nice mm-hmm. so <laughs> when i have to get real because my management style is very much kind of love affair i'm gonna give you some grace but you know if you're not pulling your weight we're gonna have we're gonna have words and so <laughs> mm-hmm. so inspired by roadhouse love that patrick swayze shows off his martial arts skills in that it's fantastic you want to watch it again. I may actually queue it up this week if I, if I find a chance to. All right. So speaking of, you know, getting off the call, you just told me that you didn't like John Wayne or coffee. So I know oh. we're going to have to agree to disagree. I think <laughs> Oh my! maybe I won't be gracious. a repeat on this show. Maybe it's, these are my last. So I'll make sure my <laughs> thoughts on full metal jacket are very profound. And, you know, your fans will say, Hey, you need to have him back. Just, you got to get over the coffee and John Wayne. <laughs> so, 
Oh man, have you I've seen Rio? Tried... Have tried you it. seen Rio Bravo? Yes, I have. Not a fan. Just, yeah, I, I I don't know what it is. I think it's it might be the. So I like the Searchers, and okay. I think it's I think it's John Ford style that I like, and I can get through Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and it's just. I think it's the genre that does it for me. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know that I care for that type of movie. I, I just don't care for the, the corral and all that. It just doesn't do it for me. And so, and, and that's, I mean, the same thing with, with war films. I'm not really big into war films either, which is kind of why when I watch full metal jacket, I can watch it with appreciative eyes, even while I kind of sit back and go, not my jam, at least the second part of this two part <laughs> feature. But I can appreciate it for what it what it does. But in terms of wrapping it up in a Western setting or in a war setting, it's it's not lost on me the themes and the impact and and even the appreciation for a John Wayne film. It's just something that I never could just kind of compel myself to watch. Now I say that when I watch Silverado, absolutely love it. Again, I love Tombstone, and so I think when you have what feels sort of more updated, maybe it's the updated Western that I like. Like I. I mean, this is where Aaron and I differ. I like the Magnificent Seven. I love the the remake, and I don't like Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai at all. <laughs> but really? I can appreciate it. It's way too long, and <laughs> so long. It's so long. I mean, my just a quick story. My wife and I were watching. I was watching it for the podcast several years ago, and my wife was laying in my lap, and I was rubbing her hair, and she kind of fell asleep. And at some point, she knew I was watching a a foreign film. She wakes up about 40 minutes later and she's like, is it still on? Because she couldn't hear dialogue. I mean, she, well, she heard people talking, but of course she couldn't understand what they were saying. And yeah. I said, yeah. And I said, it's got about an hour to go. And she goes, she goes, I'm going to bed. <laughs> and I kind of looked at her and I said, I kind of want to too. Because this is just not good. And again, there's a way to appreciate a movie and its impact without necessarily liking it. It's not one that I'm just going to queue up like, all right, going to get my annual uh, Kurosawa seven samurai watch on no i'm not going to but i'm you know also that guy who will queue up uh weekend at bernie's every summer because i have to have it on my summer watch list <laughs> nice. it's not by any means a fantastic movie but you know that's why we talk about movies and we love movies because they're so subjective to different people and mm -hmm. uh, even a classic Kubrick film like full metal jacket can hit or miss depending on who you are mm-hmm well, speaking of Full Metal Jacket, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know when you first saw this movie and why you wanted to talk about it? Several years ago on our our show, Feel and Film, we were doing in January because there was always a lull in the uh, in the movie like what was coming out in the theaters because after you know, December there's a big Oscar push and then it's not until like February March when things really start to pick up. We started doing what we call Director Month, and Stanley Kubrick was actually our first highlight, our director highlight. So we had picked movies that we knew were going to be good discussions without having seen a lot of them. Now, I can't speak for Aaron, but of the movies that we picked, I had only seen, I think, two of them, Dr. Strangelove and 2001 A Space Odyssey. The other two, I believe, were The Shining and this one, Full Metal Jacket. And when I watched Full Metal Jacket the first time, it was really jarring and something that I had been used to Kubrick's style, just very long, intentional. I think he's an intentional director. 
the way he shoots is very much like an artistic style as opposed to he's not an action director per se, but he is very much, I would say in the, if you were to describe him as anything, it'd be sophisticated. Like he knows the message he wants to convey and he puts it in, in a way that feels very much not direct and like not deliberate. Full Metal Jacket was very direct and deliberate in its action, in its like filmmaking itself. But the themes that under underlined it were very much a lot more subtle. And so watching it the first time, it's hard. It's a hard watch, JB. It's it's one of those things where I put it probably in the same vein as something like American History X, where I can appreciate deeply what's being told to me, the story that's being told. And at the same time, I really don't want to revisit because it, one, it could potentially diminish my appreciation of the impact that a movie makes and also that there could be things in it or there have been things in other movies that are just like wow that was ultimately something i just don't need to see again and so i can i can put full metal jacket in that same bank of movies but it's one that i could watch a second or a third time in this case i think it's my third time watching it and i think what drew me to it for for our conversation was about this idea that you have this masculine world that we're in for almost you know two plus hours, and yet there is this level of challenging that masculinity that lives in both of these parts. First of all, it's a great movie to talk about because of the way in which it's structured. You essentially have two short films that are kind of put together that are connected by Matthew Modine's character, Joker. And you could argue that, well, these two movies, these two parts don't really connect apart from that. No, they do. Because what you see is Joker essentially re-experiencing what Pyle did and how his reaction to his identity being taken away and becoming just another drone in this military troop. It, it just happened more subtly. And I think that's the beauty of Full Metal Jacket is the notion that, you know, history is bound to repeat itself. I think that's one of the things that I pulled from it and that, you know, Joker, Joker puts himself in a position where he thinks he's actually immune to it. But in reality, he's not. It gets him from another angle. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, well, I can't honestly can't remember the first time I watched this. I just know that it was the second Stanley Kubrick movie that I watched. The first one I watched was uh, The Shining. I saw that in college. And I think I watched Full Metal Jacket right after college, probably. And I thought it was okay. I mean, I had it at about a three and a half stars. And then, like, a t- two years or so ago, I watched 2001 for the first time. And I was like, okay, I decided to go all the way through Kubrick's uh, filmography. I don't like 2001, by the way. You can you can hang up if you want to, but I, I don't like that movie. <laughs> It's just it was almost a five star movie until one point when it just dropped to four and a half. I'll just <laughs> I'll just say that for myself. Okay. But and then when I went through his entire filmography, everything kept jumping full metal jacket, you know, like so I if you had asked me a month ago where where would I rank full metal jacket, I would have said he's probably it's probably about my ninth favorite of, of his of Kubrick's filmography. But then Finally, you said you wanted to talk about this. I was like, okay, I need to watch this movie again because I'll probably appreciate it more as a 37-year-old or or 36-year-old versus when I was, what, 25 when I watched it the first time. And so watching it again, I was like, 
Yes, it definitely jumped way up. Now, now it's probably like third or fourth on on my uh, Kubrick rankings. I really, really liked it, and it's got that first half or really first act, first third of the movie was unprecedented. I mean, it was like you just have never seen anything like that in a film, and you really haven't seen it on that level since. Yeah. That speaks and, to Kubrick. Go ahead. No, so it speaks to Kubrick, but it also speaks to uh, Lee Elmer too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, when you when you watch when you watch that, uh, so much about that feels like you're almost just taking a handheld camera, putting it on a tripod, and just watching what's happening because there's no music except during the last sequence of that first part, and it's interesting to see how Kubrick uses music or ambient noise to emphasize a particular moment when Gomer shoots shoots Hartman and then shoots himself. No other time, I believe, in that first part is music ever even used. And then it shifts to Vietnam where we get 50s and 60s music playing in the background and it feels like a different movie altogether. And I think that was intentional. The jarringness of that switch, I think, is really kind of emphasizing the idea of this duplicity that you have two different places, boot camp and war, symbolized by a, with no transfer at all. It's like there's no transition. It's not like you see a scene where Joker is on a bus and he's just kind of reflecting on what's happened. We just go right into war. And we know that it's been a significant amount of time because his hair has grown out. And so I, I think, yes, uh, I, I want to give props to, to Arlie Ermey for just, he has become probably the memorable part of that half of the movie or that part of the movie. And that's not discrediting Matthew Modine or, uh, or Vincent D'Onofrio, but he threads all that together. I mean, his voice is all you hear. It's all you hear, man. I mean, you don't hear anything else apart from people responding to him, the soldiers reacting to him. And there's occasionally small intimate moments with Joker and, and Pyle or, with Joker and somebody else, but it's all him. And you're right. I don't think any, I don't think there's been any other movie that has come close to showing that impact that he makes on his troops. I think there's a, the, the best parody I think is, uh, is major pain. Major pain. <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> the best parody, <laughs> but it's a tribute at that point, right? Because it's a, I mean, you know that that's, that's kind of where that's coming from. And any time graduated from turds to maggots. That's, I mean, it, can, I mean, it's absolutely, uh, you know, it's like it's what is it? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. That's exactly uh-huh. what it is. And what yep. a great way to to make that on a comedic level because you laugh at first when when Hartman is yelling at these guys and just saying all these amazingly just rotten things, calling them out and doing things that we can't say on the show. And the first thing you see is Pyle smiling, not because he thinks what he's doing is funny, but because he's just a happy dude. Like that's his demeanor. Uh And that's where I think we really get the first kind of wow moment is he gets Pyle on the floor and he tells him to, he said, let me, he chokes him, but he makes Pyle lean in to Hartman's hand. And then, his demeanor completely changes. And that starts, of course, the whole sequence of, of that first part 
of just tragedy. And, uh, you know, when I look at that, I was reminded of the movie Friday Night Lights and the head coach and watching how he talks to his players in practice versus how he talks to them individually. And there's a scene in it where he goes over to, to Mike's house, the quarterback, and he just talks to him on his bed as like a father to a son. But that's different than how he talks to the team in the locker room. And I think that what we what we see here is this adjustment that is not there's no adjustment made here that Hartman believes in the method that he is doing. And it's in contrast with Joker. And it comes out in that last scene before the the two the two kills. Hartman never has any sympathy. Like he never breaks. And that tells me that Hartman, that's who he is. He's not playing a part. He is absolutely this is who he is. And it's also pretty hilarious that he's wearing his hat in his you know, in his street clothes and anyway, whatever. But <laughs> but I think that it speaks to the fact that as men especially as dads or as, uh, as folks that are trying to be an influence on others, we have to be able to adjust to a person's emotional state. We have to be able to look at them and find out what's going on. Because the fact is, what we saw is that his method didn't work for everybody. Now, yeah. did it work to get his to, to achieve his goal of making them all machines? Absolutely, because that's what Pyle became in spite of himself. And Joker, as we see later on, he became a machine. He became the thing that he thought he he wasn't going to become. And so when I watch that, I think to myself, okay, if I'm leading people, if I have a team of people under me, I have to recognize one, that they're all different. They all come from different walks of life and that sometimes they need a gentle kind of approach. And sometimes they need a stern type of approach. And even as a dad, my son, he is so precious and for better or for worse, he has taken on one of the traits he has is being very, I won't say he's very sensitive, but he's very, very much a, an empathetic child. And he gets that from my wife, just very self-aware, very tethered to his emotions. And as a dad is very stoic, <laughs> that's hard for me to adjust to. And so I have to rely on her. I have to rely on cues from him. And just instead of going, you need to stop doing this. This is dumb. You don't, instead I can say, how is this making you feel? And I'm sorry that you're feeling this way. And I wish I could understand what you're going through, but please talk to me about this. And so I think that's something that we have to be able to do as men. We have to be able not to just quote, tap into our feminine side, but we have to be able to have a rounded approach when it comes to our relationships with people. Because the fact is not all men are going to look like these guys in boot camp. They don't all want to be war machines. I would imagine that Pyle was drafted. I don't think he chose to be in the Marines. I think he was actually drafted. And you know, that seems very obvious as we get through that we almost try to celebrate with uh with Hartman that he's you know learning how to sling his rifle, know how to shoot, but it comes at a cost. And mm-hmm. if, you know, I see that as something like, man, I can't push my own agenda if or do it in a way that I feel like is right for me if I'm not listening to other people and allowing their perspectives to influence me. So I think that's one of the big ideas that I pulled from that first part of the movie. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. Join a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director 
as we laugh, argue, and explore the history of humanity's triumphs and tragedies through war films old and new. With new episodes every other Friday, we are Dan, Katie, and Liam. And this is Danger Close. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and listen to an 80s flick flashback podcast once in a while, you could miss it. Do you love movies of a certain age? Do you miss the days of VHS tapes, VCRs, and the video rental stores? Does the thought of another 80s movie being remade seem inconceivable? My name is Tim Williams. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by guest co-host to discuss one of the many movies released in the 1980s. We share our first-time watch memories, our favorite scenes, and even learn some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. New episodes are released every other Friday on your favorite podcasting platform. So make like a tree, get out of here, and go listen to an excellent episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. The ad is over. Go home. Go. Yeah, first of all, spoiler warning, go watch this movie. Don't don't listen to this anymore. If you haven't watched it, go watch the movie first and come back. My bad, um, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> um, but secondly... One interesting thing about Hartman is I watched the 30 minute documentary about the making of the movie and Arlie Ermey, he came in actually originally as a technical advisor. He wasn't going to play the part because he was a drill sergeant and I don't remember what branch of the military he was in. It may have been the Marines, but he was a drill sergeant and they, they wanted accuracy. They, they valued his input as, as a former drill sergeant and, he kind of voiced interest in the part, but they had already hired an actor lined up for that part. And so they basically said no to him, but we still want you here to help us out. Well, so he interviewed as part of the casting, he was interviewing these people and he interviewed them as Hartman, the drill sergeant. And he like recorded them and sent them in for like the casting director. And that's how he got the part <laughs> was because they heard him talking like <laughs> Drill instructor uh, Hartman, and so the guy who was going to play it, uh, Tim Colseri, he ended, they ended up moving him to a smaller role as the door gunner in the helicopter. Towards the end, he has that like makes a whole lot of sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. I was <laughs> yeah. like, wow, this guy. I mean, if you want to talk about the eyesore of the second half of the movie, that's that guy. Like, <laughs> the joke he makes, which is terrible. Oh like, yeah, how can you? T- the difference between a, a VC and a non, I think a VC and non VC or whatever it was. He said VCs don't slow down or, and non VCs don't, uh, don't move or something. I can't remember what it was, but it was like, really? I mean, do you have no soul? You're just like picking, picking people off, like without any kind of, uh, morality or any kind of ethic. It's, it's awful. And and another one was uh how how can you shoot women and children? And he said you just don't lead them as much. Oh, <laughs> I was like, no. terrible! Oh, terrible. dude, <laughs> throw that guy out the window, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Oh, so it, it's a good thing that they went with the <laughs> with Army on that. But if it were like he made that first half of the movie, and that's what, like you said, that's what everyone remembers. So I don't know what it would have been without him. So props to him knowing what he wanted 
and making it happen, even though they told him no, <laughs> like that's, that's a manly thing right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. It makes so. me laugh that he, the next time I hear his voice is in the 1995 Pixar movie, Toy Story as the, the head soldier. <laughs> I think it's just hilarious, especially after watching Full Metal Jacket, because all I see is his character in that role with an edit button. Like, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine? And maybe somebody's done this where they've taken his voice from Full Metal Jacket and have superimposed it over Toy Story with all the profanity and just make it like this is what Toy Story would be if it were rated R. You have Arlie Army <laughs> just doing its thing to a bunch of like plastic <laughs> army guys. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, then later on, he was in Saving Silverman as the the kids' head coach in high school, and he 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 killed a man with a <laughs> with a, a re- referee um, marker. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> First down <laughs> marker. That's what it was. Because <laughs> of course, he did. oh man, of course he did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Rip your eye eyeballs out of your sockets, and yeah, never mind. We're not going to go there. <laughs> Oh, but man, what a what a what a legend he yeah. he made of himself for for that movie. And, and a lot of these guys really hadn't really hadn't done much work at all before. No, wow. no, this was very much. I wouldn't call it an early all star cast, but there were definitely some uh, some big players to come out of this. Um, Adam Baldwin, of course, was uh, who played Animal Mother. Uh, mm-hmm. Matthew Modine, who has done uh, just a ton of work. And not necessarily like big, big roles, but he's one of those actors that is just prolific in terms of just having a lot of performances under his belt. But he, in in some ways, he falls into that category of he was that guy that was in this and in this. He was that guy that was in this. And just watching watching him and his performance, because he was sort of the through line of this whole movie, watching what I tried to do this time, JB, was watch from his perspective as opposed to the the standouts that we're mentioning and mm-hmm. to see the migration of his character. And I find it really interesting to see how he is very much self-aware. And even his name Joker comes from the fact that he has this working duality of mm-hmm. being aware that he is laissez-faire, kind of laid back, but also knows that he is being trained for war. And this has been pointed out on a number of times in literary literary write-ups and probably other podcasts about you see his his helmet that is contrasted against his button of peace. You have these two contrasting things. And he makes a comment that says, born to kill, interlaced with this button that is a peace sign. And his uh, commanding officer at Stars and Stripes even says before he takes off to go on assignment, he says, you need to get rid of that because he knows that it's a mixed message. And there's another guy when they're taking photos of the uh, of the dead Vietnamese folks that are covered in that lice or whatever, the, the white powder. He says, um, he's, he's asked, you know, why do you have that there? And he, he, refer, the, he interrogates him and, about why he wears a peace symbol. And he says, it's the duality of man, that, that Jungian things are... And it really speaks to the fact that we have this character who is living two lives. Like, and I think this is my interpretation is that he's on this journey of trying to understand who he's supposed to be. And so when you look at 
Joker and you see him eventually become the thing that he was trained to be, I think it surprises him because I think he wants the best of both worlds. He is a he's a reporter with a gun. <laughs> but and I think he he recognizes that he's not in the stuff. We can't say the word on the on the show, but he is <laughs> he's very much in Vietnam, but he's not part of like all the action and he's getting bored. But when he actually gets into it, like when he actually has to fire his weapon and eventually he ends up shooting the the sniper who is a woman, it completely changes him. Like I think that's the trigger for him. Just like when I think when Pyle gets the affirmative or the affirming nod from from Hartman about how well he is as a as a rifleman, something changes in him. And I think while it's probably for the worse, <laughs> he is now a part of the group. Joker is now part of the just he's another soldier in this. He's lost his individuality. I think it speaks to the fact that when we're living with duality, when we're living with these two people, it hurts us because we can't fully invest in one or the other. And so as I was I was watching this, I was thinking, okay, am I living two lives in certain parts of my life? Am I one way when I go to work and another way when I go home? And that's that challenges me as a man because I think we are as men challenged with our identity and what that's wrapped up in, you know, so it could be, you know, who we are is defined by where we work, who we are is defined by how much money we make, who we are is defined by the toys that we have, whether it's a motorcycle or a gun. And I think that that sort of exists in this movie in different ways where you have a, a mission or a vision of one man that says, you are no longer going to be an individual. You are now going to be a part of the group, and that's going to be your identity. And it's ironic because your identity is lost at that point. And so watching, watching Joker go through that, it reminds me of the fact that I need to maintain what my identity is and make sure that that identity is deep, that it's unchangeable, that it's unshakable. Even when I start questioning why I value what I do, I need to realize that, look, I am I am who I am because of X and to hold to that. And if it's not something that has long term value, is it really a valuable identity? And I think that kind of plays itself out in this movie. Yeah. And Joker is, is really an interesting character you know, because you kind of see him in the beginning when Hartman, he asks him if he believes in the Virgin Mary and he says, sir, no, sir. And. You know, Hartman keeps pressuring him to say that he believes in the Virgin Mary and he, and he threatens him. And finally, Joker just tells him that, you know, he believes that the punishment will be greater if he caves. And so he immediately gets promoted to squad leader. So, like, even though obviously he basically said that he doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ, <laughs> but I, I can still commend someone for standing for their beliefs, whatever that is. Uh, even under pressure and that's what he does but then later on he's responsible for pile that that's his job he's supposed to make him better he's supposed to teach him and train him and pile keeps messing up and keeps messing up and then he goes to him trying to ask for advice and he doesn't really have anything to tell him but he organizes a soap towel beating on the guy like hard to watch it was really I like no watch. wonder the guy snaps i mean even the guy that's supposed to be looking after him Hates his guts. <laughs> so, like, uh, I mean, maybe he learned from that, but dude, the fact that he never really, well, it's part of Kubrick's style. I mean, 
he's not going to give you the full scope of what happens, uh, the, the aftermath of that or, or how Modine wrestles with that. But man, that would haunt me if what the person that I was in charge of and didn't really do my job and he ends up killing himself and the drill instructor. And man. I think that's, and I think that's a disconnect for a lot of people. And, and for me to an extent, it's like, look, you just experienced something incredible in the double murder of the guy that you were in charge of essentially protecting and taking care of and your uh, commanding officer. And then when we cut to months later, we don't, we don't get to experience like the fallout from that. And then I guess we can interpret what happens after that with Joker as the fallout. But I still, even after watching it several times, have trouble connecting those dots. So, I mean, I could interpret it as him just sort of burying that and not being able to to reconcile that or grieve in an appropriate way. Because the fact is, he was being shipped out two days later to go to, what is it, I guess, journalism camp or whatever it was, the <laughs> next step. And and that's that's hard to that's hard to fathom because but at the same time, it's it's easy to understand because the world that Kubrick depicts is there's no time for that. There's no time to grieve. There's no time to really process your emotions yeah. and process what you just experienced. And I think I think that's by design because I think it plays into Kubrick's anti-war message of nobody cares about you as an individual. As long as you're getting the job done, as long as you carry that rifle and you shoot accurately and you get the the Vietnamese, you get the enemy, whoever that is, it doesn't matter. I think that's why the great filmmaking of Kubrick really kind of is on full display here when in both of the big kind of shootout sequences, we never see any of the enemy. We never see the faces of anyone until the very end when we see the sniper and, you know, you double up and it's now a woman. And I think that's the other thing that challenges Joker is that you mentioned that joke, you know, how can you shoot women and children? Well, he did. (laughs) He shot a young woman because Mm -hmm. she was something else. She was, she wasn't faceless, but, in that same way, I almost parallel this JB with the pressure that he felt in that moment was paralleled, I think, with the the soap punishment thing with the soap in the sock. That because mm. he, he hesitates. I don't know that it, maybe I missed this in the movie, but I don't think it was his idea to do that. I think it was the platoon that said, "We've got to do this," and everybody gets like three licks on him. He was the last person. He hesitated. At that point, he made a choice. And I think, you know, the the standard issue observation is that he gave into peer pressure. But I also think he was conflicted. That duality that, that he was dealing with of like being himself and being part of the unit was challenged. Unfortunately, that choice led to catastrophic consequences. I think had he not, had he said back off or had he said, had he stayed there and just like put his hand on Powell's arm. I think that would have gone so that would have gone so far in helping Heil kind of reconcile a little bit. But of course that's not what Kubrick's doing here. I mean he I yeah. think he's showing how deep that idea of being part of something, being committed to something, how it can have negative consequences. Like how far will your commitment to something go that jeopardizes your individuality and your ability to see clearly enough to protect someone that's a that's a strong theme that i think is played even in the second half where we see 
masculinity on full display, just like it is in the first half. But at no point do we see anyone going against the grain. It's always affirming, 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 whatever it is, whether it's the prostitute that comes in and says she's going to uh, give these guys what they want for $15 and eventually just kind of gets negotiated down to $5. Man, how degrading is that? But uh-huh. nobody ever stands up and says, this is wrong. Yeah. I think it speaks to just this kind of coldness that if it's not satisfying me, it's expendable. And in this case, it's women. So there's a there's definitely a, a negative kind of a uh, look on masculinity. The first half of the movie or the first part of the movie has no women in it at all. And mm-hmm. any kind of references to women is done in a derogatory way. You know, these guys naming their, their guns after women, the uh this is <laughs> this is my rifle, this is my gun, the <laughs> the, <laughs> the marching is obviously yeah. very much sexualized. And I think that it's just it's misplaced. It's misplaced masculinity because it essentially puts masculinity on a false pedestal and it makes everything else, whether it's femininity, weakness, it, it, it kind of co- connects all those dots. So the ability to be sensitive, the ability to have emotion, the ability to tap into feelings is completely diminished. And I think that is, of course, played out with, with Pyle's story and how he's like, no, it's done. I'm, I'm out of here quite literally and i'm never be able to recover from this yeah i mean true masculinity you can see towards the end in a couple of spots Uh, and and one in particular was when cowboy was dying and he kept saying i can hack it i can hack it i can hack it and one of the guys looks at him right right before he dies he says you can hack it that one little thing that that one little line He's basically affirming to him that you are a good man and a good soldier and you can take this before he dies on his, on his deathbed. He gets to hear his brother tell him that he's done a good job. Yeah. Means the world to him. And now he can die in peace. Great point. I don't know. That just, that hit me when, when that happened and it was so subtle. Like <laughs> If you're not paying attention, you, you miss it. But what our peers think about us, what our brothers with them, I mean, these guys are—they're like brothers. They do everything together. So, you know, what are what the closest people to us think about us is important, and it means Absolutely. a lot to us. Yeah, I mean, early on, and I think it's at the tail end of the first part. Hartman, when he is, he is the ultimate. Like he's a father figure by the end of this whole sequence because it's interesting. He basically at the beginning of all this takes away their humanity. He says, "You're maggots. You're nothing." And then when they get through boot, as he is talking to them, you hear him say, you are no longer maggots. Mm-hmm. You are now Marines. And he, I think he says something like, you're now a family. You're now brothers. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine, JB, when you go through all of that, I mean, in some ways you could define it as trauma of, of boot camp and, and really kind of breaking your, being broken down to be built back up, you are a new person. And there's something the silver lining of all that is that there's something really valuable about looking at the guy next to you who six weeks prior, you didn't know from Adam and now you're willing to lay down your life for him. Mm -hmm. There's something really interesting about that. Something in those six weeks changes a man for better or for worse to look at the person sitting on his left, sitting on his right and to say, look, if you are in the thick of it, if I'm there, I'm protecting you. And I think that that plays itself 
really well with Animal Mother when he is ready to go go to battle and take the sniper out, who continues to just shoot <laughs> and shoot these already kind of struggling men, which is just awful to watch. And he says, look, I'm done with this. It it stops now. And he goes in all kamikaze, perfectly you know, perfectly consistent with his character. And it's it's interesting because you know he wants to protect, but the shot that I find really, really compelling is when he is standing like six feet away or ten feet away from I don't know if it's if it's eight ball or if it's it might be Rafterman. And he's asking him, where's the sniper? Where's the sniper? And he just sort of points. And right as he points, he just gets shot up. You know, the look on Animal Mother's face, it says, I can't do anything for you. I wish I could. All I can do is just fight at this point. And there's something like I ask myself, could I do that? Could I run, literally run into a firefight for my brother who is going to die potentially? And that's a hard question to ask. But what we see is that this camaraderie comes from suffering together. It comes from sharing the same kind of vision together. And I think when you when you put that in, you can frame that in a better way. You don't have to suffer in order to bond. Although, you know, people that share grief, that's probably the quickest way that you bond. But there are ways, I think, in our friendships and our relationships that we can form those kinds of uh, those kinds of relationships. And oftentimes, the ones that are the most successful, at least for me, have been the ones with friends. You know, friends of the family that you choose, as the uh, classic Lego movie taught us. <laughs> and you know, we, I think that exists here. They weren't, they didn't choose to be family, but they were bonded under something that they all believed in for the most part. And so. I think they were. I think they got a lot of affirmation when uh, when Hartman said that you're no longer maggots. You're now Marines, and you are brothers. And that's something that they can they can hang their hat on because maybe some of these guys were only children. Maybe some of them uh, didn't have great relationships with their brothers or other family members. And this is something that they can maybe get a a new life with. Yeah, my dad. He was in the army in the '80s, and he has told me. Yeah, my dad joined the army when he was thirty years old, which is kind of kind of strange. But hey, but he he has told me time and time again that he thinks that every person in this country should have to go through boot camp because it just it changes you, and and he thinks that the, the it would be the world would be a better place if everybody had to go through that. And I kind of agree with him. Like maybe like I just and when I see. The like, and, and I don't know. It's dramatized in a, in a movie, but I kind of feel like it does make you more empathetic to your brothers, your friends, your, your closest people uh, to you, especially when you've been through that with them. You know, like if somebody was trying to attack my kid, obviously I'm going to protect him or her, and same with my wife or you know a friend. But to see your friend get gunned down and there's nothing else that you can do for him but you're going to run into a building on a suicide mission to avenge his death like that's some serious brotherhood right there like 
that's that's above and beyond what I'm talking about as far as protection goes because he's already dead. That's good stuff, man. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Talk about manliness. <laughs> and they get payback for Cowboy's Killer when they she's laying there and suffering. And then this is the, the second thing that I wanted to mention earlier about true manliness is she's suffering. She's going to die, but she's in so much pain. And what's the Adam Baldwin? What's his name again? Animal mother, uh, animal mother. And he's like, let's, let's go leave, leave her here. Nobody, you know, he's, he's like totally doesn't care. And and they're, and he's like, let's go. Come on guys. And Joker says, but dude, like she's, we can't just leave her here. And animal mother says, okay, if you want to waste her, then waste her. And, so he he looks her in the eye and she keeps saying, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. But he's hesitating. Like he doesn't want to do it because this is the first time he's actually fired a gun at a person. And he's just going through so much. He knows that it's the right thing to do. He knows it's going to put her out of her misery, but it's just hard to pull that trigger. And I get that. Like, but ultimately he's doing something that he doesn't really want to do, but he's doing it to help someone else to end their pain. And so, I mean, I, I didn't pick up on that the first time I watched it. Definitely picked it up, picked up on it this time. I just, I loved it. And, and it made me really gravitate more towards Joker's character because you kind of see his arc throughout the film. Cause he really started off like a Joker. Like he, the first thing that's why he got that name was because he was trying to be funny in the middle of a, the drill sergeant was talking and he was joking like, Oh, you don't do that. <laughs> so, and you know, and going through the, the soap bar beating and dealing with the prostitute later on and then coming down to, okay, what I, I need to, this is the enemy. She's not on my side. She just killed my friend, but she deserves to die in peace, man. Love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And the film ends in a way, JB, that's very interesting. You have these guys singing the Mickey Mouse theme song and inter- interjected with their own like language and whatnot. And his voiceover is interesting in that he's just very much like recognizing I'm in this, but I'm okay. I'm alive. And it creates I think Kubrick does this intentionally. You you sort of want that quote happy ending. Yes, he survived, but it's against this backdrop of all this chaos and fire. Everything's burning. And what I interpret that as is that, as we mentioned before, Joker has made his full transformation into that. Joker is now a different identity than we don't even know who his his actual name is. It's never mentioned, by the way that yeah. I almost believe that he gets a name and then he, he gets an identity kind of grafted onto it as the movie goes on. So we have this character Joker who doesn't feel anything anymore. He is a soldier. He's there. And it's not that it's matter of fact. It's just that he, he now has that, uh, that thousand thousand yard stare, whatever it was called the hundred mile stare because he's now someone completely different. and nothing bothers him and take that for better or for worse, but he now has no emotional ties to anything. And my fear is that 
going down that path of cutting yourself off from any kind of feeling to protect yourself through those self-protective strategies, in some ways, I think that takes away or it's misconstrued as what masculinity should be. And that's not the case at all. Masculinity is about having this holistic approach to to living and to approaching things, having an awareness of your own emotions, not you know, tossing them down into a dark pit, but not letting them control you either. And real masculinity I've seen is one of the things where you can you can balance that. You can have that duality of being emotional, but knowing when to control it, knowing when to get angry, but not get out of control. And as a dad and as a husband, that is probably one of the biggest challenges for me is when do I raise my voice to my son to let him know I'm serious, stop doing that and stop talking to your mother that way. And then in another breath, look at him and say, oh, I love you so much. And I'm so proud to be your dad. You know, just even the way that you say things and the way you look is is so much about understanding what it means to completely be masculine. The fact that he needs to see me hugging and kissing on my wife, that's important mm -hmm. for me to be on my phone in the living room, completely ignoring what's happening in the kitchen is not masculine. That's selfish and stupid. Mm -hmm. And so I, I look at, I look at Joker and I'm, I'm sort of grieving for him because he's now lost any ability to kind of get that back. Where I think his, his persona of Joker being able to balance those two was almost a strength and now it's gone. Yeah. And you know, one thing, about that ending you mentioned was he says, I'm in it. I'm in this, this world. And it's, I'm in the S <laughs> as, as he says, but I'm alive. And so like you, you kind of, you get a feeling of contentment from him and that's a good quality to have. I mean, because, and you know, one of the most misquoted Bible verses of all time is I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But the context of that verse, he's talking about contentment because uh, you know, this, Paul's in jail, right? And he's suffering and he's, uh, and, and he's going through all this stuff that's going on. And he says, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's, it's about being content in whatever situation you're in. And that's what Joker feels at the, at the end of this movie is, man, he is in a world of crap. Like this is not, this is not fun. <laughs> like, this is this is a horrible world that he's in and he understands that, but you know, anybody could be in that and think that, you know, woe is me, you know, like, and just kind of beat themselves up and just be depressed, but he's not, he's, he says, I'm in this, but I'm alive and I'm okay. I mean, that's, that, that's what we have to be with anything. And obviously none of us are going, well, most of us are not going to be in situations like he's in, <laughs> like that that rough of a situation but I, I guess that's a, another way to look at it is i mean buck up like if you, you're, you're not in vietnam so you can't be dealing with something that bad just be content with your life so it's just man that's good <laughs> absolutely absolutely oh man what are the, any other manly moments in this that stick out to you i mean you could basically the the whole action sequences that take place. I mean, there's a lot of just good stuff going on there with, I, I love as much as I'm not necessarily a military minded guy. I absolutely love the marching 
I think the unity of that is so cool to, to watch. Um, and, and that speaks to, again, the, the unity of the unit, the ability to, you know, if one falls, they all fall. And then you have just the, the rifle technique that's, that's used, uh, just the precision of all that. I think there's something very cool about just being able to, to have that kind of precision. And just the idea of boot camp in general, not that women can't go through boot camp by any means, but structure is is very much a masculine thing. I think that's something that my wife and I, we go back and forth on even after being married for 14 years uh, coming up next month. I love structure. I love a plan and I love being able to have things in place. That's not you know exclusively masculine, but the idea of putting something in place where may not know what the outcome is going to be, but you at least have a plan. I think that's something that men generally gravitate towards is this idea of, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's how it's going to work. And let's hope it plays itself out. But I, I just, I think Kubrick does such a great job with the sequences in, in Vietnam. He's very selective about, it. it's not always just shooting and shooting and shooting, but the moments that he does, it's very intentional. And I thought that, the, that those sequences were, were very well done. Yeah, and he really puts them through it too, and, and makes it as accurate as possible. I think in the biography, one of them says, "Did I grow up around guns? Had I ever fired a gun in my entire life? No, but can I take apart an M16 and put it back together blindfolded now? Absolutely. <laughs> like, it's like these guys really learned how to do this stuff. Right, so it's right, it's right. it's crazy. Very authentic. Very authentic. For sure. And the things that are Lee. Uh, Ermy says throughout the the first half, a lot of that was totally off the cuff. He just came up with it, and it cracks me up. Like, <laughs> and then one thing that he says, and you know, talking about being part of the core, he says, you know, you can give your heart to Jesus, but your ass belongs to the core. And, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, but that, that's I mean, that's legit though. Like he's he's saying, yeah, I mean. You can worship Christ, but you know what? <laughs> I'm your daddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly, like, Exactly, yeah. It's... You may have a heavenly father, but I'm your earthly daddy right now. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> he was not playing, dude. He, he was the ultimate, and I would say, whether it's toxic masculinity or whatever, it's masculinity on some level, <laughs> watching him yeah. do his thing, for sure. But, I mean, you mentioned earlier that in a lot of ways, he was a father figure. I mean, he was a total hard you know what, but he was, and, and in the end, when it was all over, you know, he did tell him, let's say hey, you're Marines now, you know, go, I think he did say that you're brothers. So like, it's, I have mixed feelings about the tactics that he was using. Part of me says, I mean, do we have to go, go that far? But then part of me says, if he's producing results, you know, what, what can I, how, I, I can't tell someone how to do their job. You know what I mean? Like if that's, the tried and true method that he's worked with before. I don't know, but it's, it's just nuts. <laughs> the whole thing. Like I couldn't do it. <laughs> That's all I can say. For sure. I couldn't either. I'm I'm fine with being grateful for those who can. And we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you mention something about a, uh, a book or like a yeah audio book or something? Yeah. I wanted to just do a quick plug for this, uh, app it's on uh, it's an ios app called the full metal jacket diary um so if, if you don't know aaron and i we covered full metal jacket you know feeling film i mentioned that we also had an opportunity out of that 
to get an interview with Matthew Modine and his producer, Adam Rakoff, regarding this book called Full Metal Jacket Diary. So if you don't know, Matthew Modine was asked by Stanley Kubrick to actually keep a diary on set. And back several years ago, it was released as an actual book. I think there were maybe 500 copies made. You can find them on eBay for pretty outlandish prices because, I mean, there weren't that many. And from that, he created an audio book. And his, his friend Adam, uh, his producer friend, came up with this idea to actually turn the diary into an interactive application for, for Apple, you know, for the Apple App Store. And what it comes with, it, it comes, I believe it comes with the full audio of the diary, but it also has tons of pictures from the book. It's got five chapters chronicling the filmmaking process. It's got the, uh, the four-hour audiobook attached to it, 400-plus high-res photos, just lots of cool stuff. And it's, it's definitely a niche app. It's not for everybody. But when you, when you look at Stanley Kubrick as a director and you see the character of Joker, you kind of realize that that's Matthew Modine playing himself. And in fact, I've got an excerpt here that you can play that gives you a preview of the diary itself. And but that preview also kind of speaks to how Matthew approached his performance as Joker. But I fully recommend the audiobook. It's fantastic. And uh, for those of you that have iOS devices, you can find the Full Metal Jacket Diary. It's a buck ninety nine in the App Store. Definitely worth the download. I would probably, if you have an iPad, probably look at it there. I think yeah, it's designed for iPads. So I don't know if you can actually download it to an iPhone because I'm not I'm not an an Apple user, but I have seen it. It's been demoed for me and uh, my buddy Aaron. He got a copy of it, and it's just it's just amazing. So if you're interested in that, if you if you love the movie or even like the movie and want to find out more about the journey that Matthew Modine took, it's a uh, it's a really really cool app. And if you want to check out the interview with us and them, it's early in our podcasting career, so we've got you know it's it was one of our first interviews, but it's a great great conversation both with with Matthew and with Adam. Uh, Adam, we got to talk a lot about the app itself and kind of how it came about, the process and everything, and it's a, it's really good. So check it out, check all that out. I actually haven't listened to that episode because I, I try to listen to episodes like fairly recently after I've watched the movie, and right. since I hadn't seen Full Metal Jacket in like you know ten or fifteen years, I was like, I'm gonna wait and listen to that until I just rewatched it. So I, I need I need to listen to that episode. But we'll be sure. I'll, I'll I'll try to put some stuff in the show notes for you guys to listen to. By the way, I have show notes. <laughs> like anything that we talk about, it's going to be in there probably, and ways to to contact us or or whatnot, or to donate to the show if you want to. But yeah, cool. Uh, definitely check those out. I'm I'm interested in that app. I don't have an iPad. I have an iPhone, and I don't know if I can do that or not. But I'll I'll, I'll check it out and see. But cool. At the very, at the very least, the the audio book that you can actually purchase separately is just as good. And okay. um, Matthew, he actually he he reads it, and just the the quality of how the book is is done is just absolutely incredible. Nice. I will check that out. I wonder if it's like on Libby or something. I can listen to it for free. <laughs> yeah, it could be. 
check it out. Well, cool. Uh, why don't you just tell everybody how they can find you? It's kind of sure. hard these uh, days. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm elusive. <laughs> well, you can find me talking about movies with my buddy Aaron on Feeling Film. You can check out a lot of our podcast episodes at feelingfilm.com. But I also have an individual Twitter account that's pretty much my only kind of social media presence uh, right now. And I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. So, yeah, check me out there. Uh, find out what my opinions are on Full Metal Jack, and I'm sure they're similar to what they are here on this episode. And uh, if you want to find out more about what I thought, you can go to Feeling Film. Yes, sir. Check out the episode of Feeling Film with, on uh, Varsity Blues. That's, that's that's one of the best ones. <laughs> Highest rated ever is what you need to go check that out. <laughs> <laughs> Highest rated ever. Yeah. <laughs> greatest, it's, it's, greatest conversation it, in the world. It's the highest rated episode because I've listened to it about a hundred times. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, just, you download it like once a day. <laughs> it's got a million I'm going to show them. Get me back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, football season's coming up, man, uh, when we're recording this. So I'm sure we'll probably do some football movies and we'll bring you back on for those. Oh, man. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, I still want to talk about Breakfast Club whenever y'all get to it. That's um, we'll We'll make that happen. I think... I, I was talking to I was talking to Aaron about that, and I think if there's ever a time when um, when we have extra episodes or when he needs a break, if that's one, I don't know, if he's a big '80s uh, comedy guy or even John Hughes guy, but because uh, he bowed out for for Mr. Mom that had a John Hughes tag on it, but uh, <laughs> the <laughs> but yeah, if if uh, if he ever doesn't want to be Breakfast Club, if I need somebody, I'll bring you on for that, and we can do it. Yeah, I was telling him. Cause he, he came on here and we, we, we talked about, um, the Daniel Day Lewis last of the Mohicans, last of the Mohicans, man, geez, goodness. And we talked about that and I was telling him about how, like, you know, growing up, I didn't really watch movies like that because I watched stuff with my mom and, you know, like breakfast club and dirty dancing and stuff like that. So like breakfast club is like my go-to, like I just, I've, I've watched it my whole life and I don't know. It's 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 a top three movie all time for me. Always has been and always will be. So that's awesome. That's a good one. And I do love John Hughes movies. Um, you know, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Every Thanksgiving, I'm I'm queuing that one up, man. I just has to be has to be rewatch <laughs> every Thanksgiving. It's it's the it's the singular Thanksgiving movie that you want to watch that is out there. I don't know if there might be an argument for other quote Thanksgiving movies, but uh, but that's the quintessential one. I think Sin of a Woman is probably the only other one that's like, and, and but you know, nothing compares, no, nothing compares to, you know, Planes, Trains and Automobiles for sure. Well, cool. And, you know, you can follow me guys um, at Manly Movies one on Twitter and everything else. I think I'm just Manly Movies, uh, Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, if you like the show, go ahead and give us a four or five star review and write something nice on there. Because we appreciate it and it helps grow the show. So I don't I don't say that often enough. I probably should. So yeah. Well, man, thanks for coming on. I enjoyed it. Um, even yeah, though you're, I'm, I was gonna say I'm glad to be on. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yep. Even LSU fans are allowed on here. So occasionally, occasionally, I'd be invited back like four or five times between when I was last time, but because I'm an LSU fan, it's just the second time. So <laughs> I understand. It's cool. I mean, I, I get it. I get it. 
I just don't want to hang around with like champions all the time. So <laughs> there's <laughs> only so much purple and gold I can stand. So only so much. I understand. <laughs> well, cool, man. But yeah, everybody listening, just guys, you always remember in every situation, you've got to man up. <laughs>